If you brought a Bible along with you or your device, I'm going to encourage you to open it up right away because we're going to dive right into our uh, scripture passages and some of the teaching time. And I'm just going to give you the heads up that the back end is going to be heavy with worship and praise and confession. So that's where we're all we're going. Uh, and I'm excited about what that's going to look like for all of us. But again, for those of you who are part of our church family in both the, uh, auditor- well, the auditorium here as well as the sanctuary, we've been kind of following along this book by Timothy Keller, Jesus the King. And this week's passage is from the chapter titled The Approach. And so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark 7. We're going to be reading from verse 24 through the end of the chapter. But at the same time, I'm going to ask you and invite you to also open to the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 15, specifically verses 21 to 28, because I'm going to be hopping back and forth between the two, and I'll try to keep that straight, but you're going to have to just kind of follow along and trust me as I uh, kind of go, because it's really interesting, because as we look at those two scriptures and how those two wrote, we've already kind of figured out so far as we've studied Mark, uh, I'm sure it's been pointed out to you and you maybe have noticed how many times Mark uses the word immediately. He's all about immediately and moving on to the next thing and immediately and moving on to the next thing. The beauty of Matthew and his version of this particular story is that he slows down and kind of fills in some of the gaps and some of the details. So we're going to use a little bit of Matthew's account as well as the Mark account. So here's the word of God from Mark. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. Side note, that could be another whole sermon. If you think about today's world, his presence cannot be kept secret. No extra charge for that one, but just think about that. His presence cannot be kept secret. I almost went on a rabbit trail and went that direction, but I didn't. But I just thought that was really powerful. So think about that, pray about that. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syria, Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. The story goes on. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. They begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephrathra, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Here ends the reading of God's word. So here we go. I think the best place for us to start is to maybe look back a little bit earlier in where we were at last week in chapter 7 in Mark. 
Because if you remember about that story, there was a big dispute going on between Jesus and the religious leaders about ritual purity, about defilement. Hopefully some of you remember a little bit of that story. If not, go back and watch Tim's presentation or Kevin's from last week. Amazing sermons explaining what was all going on through that whole process. And it was immediately after that confrontation on what's clean and unclean that Jesus goes into a region that is notoriously unclean. He's trying to find rest from the crowds, but as we noted, it doesn't work. We read that a woman boldly approaches him who is about as far from the covenant of God as you could get. She's a Phoenician, she's a Gentile, she's a pagan, she's a woman, and her daughter has an unclean spirit. So if you understand all that we talked about last week, about all these rules and rituals, about being unclean, you're going to start to see the irony of what's going on here. She knows, she knows that in every way, according to the standards of that day, she's unclean. And therefore, that disqualifies her from any conversation with a man, let alone a devout Jew, let alone a rabbi. But having a mother's heart, she doesn't care. Notice at the end of verse 25, where it says, she fell at his feet. She's literally pleading And she keeps pleading, and she keeps pleading. My baby is sick. My baby needs your help. She's playing homage to Jesus. She fell at his feet. She knows that Jesus is her last hope. Then I'm going to jump over to Matthew. And if you look in Matthew in verse 22 in the text, it says, The Lord, and she says this, Lord, Son of David, Have mercy on me. So let's just stop for a second. Let's think about that. Clean versus unclean. The the religious people from last week and for the several days prior to this refused to pay homage to Jesus. In stark contrast, we see the unbelief of the Jewish leaders compared to this pagan woman. As unclean as unclean can be, prostrating herself and begging Jesus for his mercy. That's why this contrast is so striking to me. She gets it. She gets it. It's the Pharisees, and quite honestly, I'm not even sure the disciples at this point got it. But she does. She knew who Jesus was and why he came. Look again at verse 22 in Matthew crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Notice what happens next. If you have Matthew open, it says this in verse 23. Jesus did not answer a word. Mark doesn't mention that. But in Matthew, it says Jesus did not mention a word. His silence is very purposeful. And as it goes on, the the disciples, they urge him, Jesus, this woman, she's just bugging us. She won't get rid of her. She won't let up. Do something. Get rid of this gal. Then again in Matthew's version in verse 24, he answered this. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I think it's important uh, for us 
in context to go, boy, that seems like it's Jesus being a little more harsh than what we've seen so far in Mark, right? Who is this Jesus? Where's my Jesus and what have you done with him sort of a feeling? It's not a real easy passage to read and it only gets a little bit crazier. But Jesus knew his role. He knew what the Father had given for him for what he was to do. He had an expressed purpose. Nearly all of his ministry up to this point was in Judea, surrounding the Sea of Galilee, to Jewish people. He didn't go to Alexandria. He didn't go to Athens. He didn't go to Rome. No, God placed him in this backwater little town in Nazareth in the Middle East. Highly unlikely the strategy that you and I would probably have chosen to spread what he was doing and how the Messiah was going to come. And it's in that context, I think, that we need to look back and think, okay, Jesus' response is starting to make a little bit more sense in verse 24. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Then in Matthew, in verse 25, the woman kneels and says this, Lord, help me. It's as if she's saying, I know you have a mission to Israel, but I have a daughter at home. I'm asking you to make an exception, Jesus. I need your help. If we jump back to Mark in verse 27, He says this, this is what Jesus' response. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. What? Give it to the dogs? That's just almost downright mean. But you have to understand again, the term for dogs that he uses In that context, in that society, it's not the, because there's all kinds of dogs in that society. There's the scavenger dogs that are just running rampant on the streets, and it's not that. This is more the playful little pet puppy version, if you look at the original language. We need to understand that Jesus was just using the language of the times. Look at her response. If you look at verse 28, she said, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table have the children's crumbs. Two things I want want you to notice. It's the only time, the only time in the book of Mark that anyone refers to Jesus as Lord. And then the second thing that I thought, this is really interesting. She sees a chance. Kind of like when your kids are asking permission to do something. Yeah, but there might just be, because when he says first, she sees the door might just be open, that he will bless her and heal her baby. And she jumps at that chance. You know, it's kind of interesting because I think, again, in context, I think we all can relate to this one. I think as we read it today with what we think we know, it's almost scary, almost dangerous, like sending an email when you've got emotions that are part of you or a text. 
Because there's a couple things that we can't see and we don't really know, but the Jesus that I know, I think, will tell us that this is the way it is. Because you can't see his eyes. We can't hear the tone that he said those things to her. She could see his eyes. I think, this is my interpretation, of if we could write it knowing and if we could have been there, this is how I think we would have heard that conversation. Jesus saying something like, it wouldn't be right to take the food from children and give it to the dogs, would it? She knows what he means. She knew who she was. You don't see her up in arms about being called a dog. He's not being mean or disrespectful. No, her reply is, no, I agree with that, Jesus. Even the little dogs under the table can lap up a few crumbs, or in our world, a couple of Cheerios, or some Rice Krispies that fall on the floor. Even the little dogs, she gets it. My friends, don't miss the point. Don't get caught up on what we think Jesus is or isn't mean or harsh or any of those things. Jesus is just using terminology for his disciples' sake so that they start to get who he is and what he's come to do. Jesus, the woman could say, I'm not for a minute saying that I'm a part of your family. Every crumb that I receive, I receive as an unworthy servant. That's kind of an interesting way to think about that. She knows I'm not amongst the numbered children. She knows I have no prior claim, but, but I need your help. And you are the only one that can fix this. My friends, this is a beautiful illustration of what it means to come to Jesus, or as Timothy Keller talks about, this is the approach. She didn't come to argue her claims as being just as good as the Israelites. She simply came confident that Jesus was the only answer. She's not saying this. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. Catch this. She is saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. And I need it now. Let me repeat that, because I think that's what hits at the crux of where I'm going. Give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness, Jesus, because we need it now. And again, if you compare that to where we were last week and the Pharisees and the religious leaders being all about the Dutch front, looking good on the outside, but their heart was as hard as stone. Their heart needed to change. And I think that's what I want us to come away with today is that, my friends, that, my church family, is how any of us should come to Jesus. Lord, help me. I need you. You're the only one that can fix this. So that's where I was at for the last three weeks. Milling around in that question and just trying to settle in on that. How do I approach Jesus? 
Do I regularly recognize my need for a savior? Those are hard questions. Here's an interesting uh, thing I discovered. I think the Holy Spirit led me to some, he led me to a great book. Dane Ortland has written a book called Deeper. If you want a great book, it's a, it's, it is worth the read. He talks about this, that it's a strange but very consistent theme throughout the Bible. We're told time and time again that the way forward in our walk, in our relationship with Jesus, is to feel like we're going backward. In Psalms, it tells us that those whose hearts are breaking and who feel crushed by life are the people God is closest to. Proverbs tells us that it is the low and destitute that God shows favor. In Isaiah, we are surprised to learn that God dwells in two places, way up high in the glory of heaven and way down low with those who void themselves of self-confidence and empty of themselves. Why does the Bible do this? Does it want us to be in this constant state of bummed out and always feeling badly about ourselves? Absolutely not. Please hear me. Absolutely not. He wants us to see our sickness and go to the doctor, the only one that can heal us. He wants us to get healed. Orland again in his book, he says this, fallen people enter into joy only through the door of despair. Fallen people enter into joy, true joy, only through the door of despair. Fullness can only be had through emptiness. And here's where the rubber met the road for me the last three weeks. For some of us, that happens very decisively at our point of conversion. Where we confess our hopelessly sinful predicaments for the first time, and then we fall into the arms of Jesus and then that is an ongoing rhythm for the rest of our walk. We've made a confession. Lord, I needed you. I am desperate. I couldn't do it without you. And then we fall into the arms of Jesus. I'm not going to tell you my whole story, but that was not my story. I'm going to be suspicious that some of you are going to be dangerously similar to what my story blessed with a wonderful family. Grew up in a Christian home, Christian education, went to church, had catechism, made profession of faith as a junior in high school, did all the right things. Lived the I lived as though I needed to have Jesus just give me a little push to the side of the pool to help me out once in a while. Rather than understanding I was at the bottom of the ocean dead. That's a huge difference, friends. When I realized, and that was not that many years ago, that I needed Jesus. I didn't have just a headache. I had terminal cancer. For those of you who were last week, Tim had this illustration where he had this t-shirt that was all stained and you know what? I would literally think to myself, I'm not that guy because I'm not that bad. My sins aren't that noticeable. I'm not that bad. I was the guy who just kind of had that grungy off-white t-shirt. But still not white. That only Jesus can give. 
So in my life, I needed to acknowledge that I was dead in my sin. I needed a savior. Being a good guy wasn't enough. Salvation, my friends, is not an assistance. It's a rescue. And I think many of us that have had the same blessings that I've had, that grew up in a church, I think we've missed that part. I think we've missed how badly we need Jesus. He's the only one that can do it. We sing about it in song. We talk about it. We talk the good talk. We know the right answers. We know what to say. But I'm going to challenge you this morning. Is that really where you're at? Have you ever, ever confessed your need for a Savior? Maybe that's you today. And I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to plant the seed. There's going to be a time when we start our worship time. If you have never done that, please, don't walk back out any of these doors without doing that. That's the most important thing you're going to do today is confess your need for a Savior, my friends. Maybe you just feel stuck. You're defeated by the old sinful patterns. Today I'm going to encourage you to just leverage that despair into a healthy sense of self-utility and walk through that door to a real, real, real spiritual traction, to a deeper relationship with Jesus. Or maybe your relationship just seems shallow. You just kind of be going through the motions. You're at that point. Today, take some time. If you've heard me speak, I've mentioned this so many times. This quote is my all-time favorite. Sit on the steps of your soul where nobody else dares to go. Today, have a conversation with Jesus. Confess your need for him. Lord, I need you. Let your emptiness humble you. Let it take you down. Gang, you can't skip this step in the journey. This is the prerequisite to everything else that we have in our journey, in our walk, in our faith. We must get to a point where we have an ever-deepening sense of how reprehensible in and of ourselves we really are. When you see the glory of God, how perfectly white and beautiful, if you want to use that picture of white, how beautiful he is, my grungy just doesn't cut it. And neither does yours. Now, I'm not suggesting today or downplaying the glorious image that God made you. But I am suggesting let yourself maintain throughout the rest of your journey with him a remembrance of just how much evil resides in you. Feel your sinfulness and let it sober you. So this morning I'm going to ask you, I'm going to invite you to look squarely in the mirror and literally repent. I know that's an exercise we do almost every Sunday. And I'm with you. Sometimes it's just a quiet time and I can't think of anything. Take an honest look. Compare yourself to the beauty and glory and majesty and the holiness of Jesus. All he's looking for is your despair. That's what he can work with. When you get to that point, 
So, then what? There's nothing noble about staying in that pit of despair. The Bible teaches that each experience of despair is like melting us into a deeper fellowship with Jesus. I love this picture. It's like jumping on a trampoline. If you go down on a trampoline, you get to go up and soar to new heights. Now, side note, many of us, because we are only allowed, many of us are on one of those mini trampolines and we don't really let ourselves go too deep so our highs aren't really very high. Does that make sense? I'm going to encourage us today to get on a big boy trampoline, a big girl trampoline, sink down because gang, when we get to this last song that we're singing, whoo baby, we're going to cut loose and we're going to celebrate. And that's how we can live our life. If you get into a rhythm of understanding who you are and how desperately you need Jesus, when we go out into the world, they're going to see a different you. They're going to see a different church. So again, this morning, I'm going to invite you to a place where you agonize over the bleakness of your sinful condition. Let that take you to a place where you get real. And then just for a few moments, collapse into the arms of Jesus. Be bathed in his grace. And just let that wash over you. Because, gang, it's there that you will find the living Lord Jesus. And he'll startle and surprise you, much like he did the woman in our story. With his grace and his love. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up. As we prepare for this time, we're going to have a lot of different options. I'm going to have a couple of different things going on. And in fact, there's going to be a lot going on. This morning, if you feel a prompting from the Holy Spirit, and you need to come up and literally accept him as your Savior, please do that. There'll be the prayer, the place of prayer is open. If you feel a little uncomfortable about coming forward and doing that, the place of prayer... You can come see Darren Wogan over here. You can come and see John in the back, Matthew in the back. There are a lot of people in here that will pray with you right now if that's where you're at. Because again, please hear me. Don't leave this room. If you have any question, if you've never done that, take the time to do that. The other thing, I've got a group of students. Come on up, gang. I've got a group of students, and I love this idea. They have willingly agreed to, if you just need a short blessing... If today you feel like, I don't know what I need, but I just need something, they're going to have like one, two, three different stations. Come on up and have them, a couple of you over on this side too, guys. That'd be great. Again, the place of prayer will be open. If not during the worship time, it will also be open after our service. And here's another one that I'm just going to encourage all of us. Paul and Dave are going to be over here serving the Lord's Supper. It's a table that he's prepared. Come and celebrate what he's done for you. And here's the best part. He's not just there to give us a few crumbs. He's got a feast, a banquet prepared. So this morning, if you feel like you need to be fed, come and enjoy the Lord's Supper. Let's worship 